name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. That was wonderful. It's hard to believe that summer is over. It's not really over, though. When you live in Florida, <laughs> we have a long way to go with shorts. I've what? I wear shorts up until when? Usually December. Yeah, I think it's around December. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's Florida. Well, listen, we're going to dive into our text today. We've got a, a, a lot of area to cover, and I know, uh, uh, well... I keep thinking, I know you're anxious to get out of here. I don't know if you are or not. Nobody's actually said that to me, but I just assume uh, that you're ready for me to stop already. Uh, but we're going to jump into our text. If you've got a Bible and you'd like to follow along, if you'll head to Luke chapter 23, please. Last week, uh, we've, we're, we're in the final stages of this gospel. We're almost concluded with this. Uh, we've uh, got a few more to go, and then uh, uh, our two-year journey through Luke will come to its conclusion, but we're... We're here at what is considered the climactic moments of this gospel story where, where Jesus has been tried. We read about his trial before Pilate and Herod and then Pilate's condemnation of Jesus, sending him off to the cross. And that's where we left off last week as Jesus was on his way to the cross and the encounters that he had there with Simon uh, of Syria and also and uh, with the women who were mourning him at, at that time. Uh, today, we're going to read about Jesus' death on the cross, and uh, then after that, we'll look at his burial, uh, and then we'll see his resurrection, which makes all of this such good news. There's no question, though, that the cross is central to the Christian faith. I mean, all through the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament letters make a lot of, about the cross. Jesus died for sinners. First Peter 3 makes that statement. Jesus died for sinners. And that is probably one of the most, you know, readily accessible statements that we have from the New Testament. I think almost anybody, when, you know, crosses are prevalent in our world. And you were, if you were to talk to somebody from our faith and say, what is the cross? I think that that statement would be the statement that comes back. Jesus died for sinners, of which I am one. It's a simple takeaway that most Christians will hold to as the focus of our faith. But the New Testament tells us that's just a partial explanation. It's a vital one, a very important one, but it's just a partial explanation of what went on with the cross. You know, why is it? I think about that. Why is it after 2,000 years we still want and need to hear the story of the cross and Christ on the cross. Why are, why are we, why are we drawn back to that? I mentioned that last week. It's one of those things we're drawn back to over and over. Is it, is it because we're, we're, you know, morbid and violent people? We like violent art, you know, you like the way that people like watching slasher horror movies or whatever. Is that why we're drawn back to that moment? I, I don't think so. I hope not, but I, I don't think so. I believe we've always been drawn to the cross because it's the key that unlocks the mysteries of God to us in ways that are surprising and unsettling, but also wonderful. It's a window through which we're able to see the heart of God towards humanity. Jesus dying on the cross is a central theme of the gospel. Jesus died for sinners. 
You know, the early writers knew something important happened uh, there in that event. It took several years, many years actually, after that to begin constructing what it might mean. I believe the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the New Testament to begin unlocking some of these things, revealing some of the mysteries of it. The Apostle Paul provides us with most of the material for that as to the significance of Jesus' death. But I'll tell you, that, that still, after 2,000 years of contemplating and studying this, it's still a great mystery. There's still a lot to be uncovered in this. Uh, uh, we've yet to, to, to plumb the depths of, of that all the way. What scriptures tell us is that somehow Jesus' death on the cross was sacrificial. He sacrificed himself for us. That, the, that he took on himself the full consequence of our rebellion against God, our determination to set up a world and some sort of manufactured paradise apart from God. But more than that, more than taking those consequences and redeeming us from them, Colossians 2 and Hebrews 2 and Revelation 5 all make it very clear that the cross was also Jesus' moment of triumph, it was the vehicle of Christ's reign in this world. And that, to me, is one of the most fascinating things about Christ on the cross. This was the means by which he revealed his kingship. Uh, in Luke's gospel, Jesus has, has turned, as we've read through it these past few years, Jesus has turned the meaning of kingship up, upside down. The meaning, honestly, of kingdom itself. Uh, you know, he's, he's eaten with the wrong people. He's offered peace and hope to the wrong people. He's, he's warned of judgment to the wrong people <laughs> that nobody was expecting. Even like last week, as he, as he's speaking to the women, uh, that were mourning and, and weeping on the way to the cross, him explaining, you're weeping for the wrong ones. Now, in chapter 23, we're going to see Jesus is hailed as king at last. Finally, he's recognized as king, except it's going to be in mockery. Mark, I'm sorry, this seems really like loud and ringy to me. It might just be me up here, but if, yeah. Can you guys still hear me if we pull that back? Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Um, Luke, uh, shows him hailed as king, and yet it's in mockery. It's all meant as, as a cruel joke uh, on Jesus. But Luke is carefully framing this whole scene in such a way that we're going to see the kingship of Jesus take form on the cross. It's, it's like I've said, it's startling, it's disturbing, but it's beautiful at the same time. We're going to see the, the, the king's royal cupbearer, it's a Roman soldier offering him sour wine as an insult. Sour wine was something that only, you know, indigents on the street were drinking at, at that time. We're going to see his, his royal inscription announcing his kingship to the world. And yet, actually, it was the criminal charge that Rome brought against him that afforded him this execution. We're going to see the generous gift of a king enthroned, which turns out to be a royal plea for pardon and a promise of a place in the royal garden for a convicted, guilty convict. I'm telling you, everything that we're going to look at here, it's so deep and mysterious. 
what was intended as a mockery turns into the deepest truth of all. Jesus is truly the King, the Lord over the earth. And he reveals that through his sacrificial, loving service to us. God is enthroned in what we're going to read on the cursed tree. So this carries very important implications for us as citizens of his kingdom, as the ones who count ourselves as a part of his kingdom. How we represent him, how we represent his reign and rule in this world becomes very important based on how it is his rule and reign is revealed in in the cross. So, uh, you know, how do we operate as his ambassadors? That's what we're going to be considering today. So if you're there in Luke chapter 23, we're going to pick up on the road to the cross where we left off, starting with verse 32. It says, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him, with Jesus. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. Rome crucified a lot of people. I mean, during the, 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 the period of time that the Roman Empire ruled the world, a lot of people suffered this face, fate. The, the numbers given by ancient historians are honestly astronomical. Uh, it was reported at, at the end of the third and final servile war, which was an uprising of gladiators and s- slaves, the, the famed Spartacus rebellion. 6,000 people were crucified on the Appian Way, on the road leading between Greece and Rome. I mean, if those numbers are to be believed, that's an amazing amount of people. 6,000 people, and that's one event. The the records of it are, like I said, astronomical. And yet, for all of those numbers reported, we have so very little information left to us about crucifixions, how they were performed, what what was involved in it, anything like that. We know that it was Rome's ad campaign for Pax Romana, for the peace of Rome. It was meant to be a deterrent to any thought of uprising or rebellion against this empire. And of the thousands reportedly crucified in ancient history, we've actually only found two skeletons that show signs of crucifixion. One was found in 1968 and the other was found in 1982. And both those skeletons corroborate the notion that the victims were nailed to crosses, though there is some suggestion that there was no uniform methodology for crucifixion. Part of the reward for... Did I not... I'm sorry, I didn't... Part of the reward for being on crucifixion detail uh, is that the soldiers could divide up whatever the condemned person had with them. And, And since we know from the other Gospels what Jesus was wearing, his robe was in nice shape... We see in this gospel, they're gambling for it to determine who it is that gets to take it with them. 
The fact that they do this, though, is, is phenomenal because it, it directly fulfills what Psalm 22 forecast was going to be happening to Messiah. Uh, it was written hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. Let me just read it to you. Psalm 22, verse 16. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. I mean, think about that. Hundreds of years before this event. And it gets fulfilled exactly as it was described. Enemies surrounding him, mocking him, asking why he can't save himself from this fate if he's really the Messiah. If you're really the one who's come to save us, your name, Jesus. It's a play on words too. Jesus means the Lord saves. And so they're saying this, Jesus, the Lord saves. What's up with you, huh? And Luke points out that they affix a sign above him that read, this is the king of the Jews. And that was, a, that was meant as an insult for everyone. It was insulting Jesus, but also the Jewish people, reminding them of their subjugation to Rome. This is what happens to someone who calls himself king. And this was a normal practice. They would attach a sign describing the crime that Rome was punishing in that. And for Jesus, they, were, they declared that this was a punishment for trying to be a rival king to Caesar. What they couldn't have known was that this sign indicated Jesus' triumph. Right here, in this suffering, God established his reign. God's kingdom breaks into the world at this moment, at this exact moment of Jesus suffering and dying on the cross. And there, from his place of triumph, his inaugural words are, Father, forgive them. As I said, the the cross becomes a window into the heart of Creator God. This is how God will rule the earth. This is God's intent for His subjects. God's reign is revealed through loving forgiveness. The cross, you know, the cross was Rome's logo meant to instill fears in in those who might try to defy them. It was uh, uh, the image of an empire run by cruelty. Uh, Everyone in the ancient world knew what a cross was. Everyone in the ancient world associated a cross with pain, with shame, with the horrors associated with it. People in respectable Roman society wouldn't even use the word crucifixion. They'd, it was almost like a, a Voldemort kind of thing. It was like the, that punishment which shall not be named. It was that sort of thing. Literally, that's what how Tacitus refers to it. Jesus, hanging on that symbol of Rome's power, inverts its meaning, making it an enduring symbol of love and forgiveness. Everyone's familiar with a cross now. The cross has been seen far and wide. No one associates it with Roman cruelty. Everyone associates it with some sort of symbol of God's love. Through Christ's sacrifice, 
we're granted forgiveness for sin, for our sins, and brought into a reconciled relationship with our Creator. So this has direct impact for us beyond, you know, the forgiveness that we ourselves received. To be a Christian means that we, we not only are forgiven through the cross, but we are made followers of the King and His cross. We're saved from sin, but we're saved for His kingdom. And the loving forgiveness of God displayed in the cross creates a people who lovingly forgive and give themselves for the well-being of others. That is how the kingdom of God is revealed in this world. We are witnesses and agents of God's forgiveness. We become those who forgive others, forgiving those who've wronged us, forgiving those who malign us as a witness of God's kingdom, of God's invasion of this broken place. Forgiveness. Yeah, but Rob, (laughs) that's hard. I'm not sure I'm into that part of it. I like the forgiveness for me. That makes sense. That's good. This other stuff, I'm not so sure of. I don't feel like being forgiving. I don't feel like forgiving, especially someone who wronged me, who hurt me. I get that. Listen, I get it. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm making light, but I get it. I'm a human too. We're all humans in this together. We're, you know, this is not something I'm trying to sentimentalize or make simplistic. This is no easy thing that we're called to. I suppose if we were to ask Jesus how easy it was to go to the cross and utter the words he uttered, I would suppose he'd tell us, yes, that was not easy. That was not an easy thing to do. But the thing we have to remember is God never asked us to feel like forgiving. He just called us to forgiveness. To quote Steve Brown, I believe God made forgiveness the focal point of his kingdom because he knows without genuine to the bone forgiveness, we will never know true freedom or joy or release from the kind of bitterness that destroys individuals and families and nations. It's all part of that. The reality is the key to everything that's important in life is found in forgiveness. Beginning with our own state of being forgiven by God. Believing and then knowing we're forgiven by God through the cross of Christ. And then from there, learning to extend that same forgiveness to others. As Paul said in Ephesians 4, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Forgiving others just as God has forgiven you. Tall order, right? That's a tall order. But it's the calling that's placed on our lives. It's what makes life so purposeful, so meaningful. We represent something beyond the brokenness and chaos of this present world. doesn't come overnight. This is a discipline. It's a practice that 
we must intentionally make a priority in our lives. Because here's the thing, we will never drift into forgiving someone. Just kind of like we're going along and finally, hey, I woke up today, yeah, hey, I'm going to forgive so-and-so. You know, That's not going to happen. We have to intentionally, and that comes back to following what Jesus told us we were going to have to do. He says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up a cross and follow me where I go. And that means then every day we wake up not feeling like, oh, I'm a Christian today. No, waking up and seeing that cross in front of us and remembering, but so-and-so, man, they hurt me. They hurt my family. But seeing that cross in front of us and intentionally remembering what Jesus did with his cross. Did he give it to you know somebody else? Well, actually he did, but he didn't do it. Somebody gave it away. But that again, as we pointed out last week, is a picture of our calling. No, we take it up. We take it up. We follow after him, intentionally taking up the practice of making forgiveness a priority in our lives. If we want to rightly represent his kingdom, if we want to rightly represent what he's like, I'm going to qualify again. I have to do this because of the way that things are in our world. When I'm saying these things, please understand that doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries in our lives to protect or keep us safe. God still intends for there to be godly boundaries there. If someone is intentionally hurting us, we can forgive without keeping ourselves in that position of continuing to be hurt, right? So if somebody's in an abusive relationship, take the steps that are necessary to remove yourself from that situation, but that still doesn't affect how the heart can can respond to the individual, right? So 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 don't misunderstand what we're saying in that but recognize the, the importance of it as well. In the heart, where, where everything counts, in the heart, learning how to lay that down. It, like I said, it doesn't come overnight. I'll tell Ruth Peterson's story again because it's so good and it means so much that when, when her husband left her for someone else and, and she would think about them and she's like, do I pray for them? I know God wants me to forgive them. And so she'd pray, God, I ask you to bless my ex-husband and his new wife, but I don't really mean it. Uh, and it was honest and it was real and she kept at that and she kept at that for a long period of time. But you stay on his path long enough, it becomes yours without even realizing it. You know it so well. I remember that rock. I remember that turn. You know it so well that it becomes our own. And one day she could wake up and say, God, I pray for my ex-husband and his wife. Oh, and I mean it. I mean it. Well, moving on. Verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So, you're the Messiah, are you? Can you imagine talking like this? You're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself. Oh, and us too, while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So Jesus hung there. He's surrounded not by people comforting him or patting his brow and encouraging him, but people mocking him and reinforcing his pain. And even one of the guys being crucified with him joins in on shaming him. Phenomenal stuff to me. Uh, Luke says they were criminals. 
Uh, the other Gospels use a different word for that um, because we know that crucifixion was reserved for rebels. Uh, so we believe, like Bar- Bar- Barabbas, these guys were terrorists as well. Maybe guys who were supposed to be crucified along with Barabbas. Jesus is taking Barabbas's place uh, uh, among them. Uh, but even as he's dying himself, one of these guys joins in to, uh, to mock Jesus. And the irony and hypocrisy of this on display are um, amazing to me. But the other guy has a different response, and there's no explanation given for it. He looks at Jesus, suffering the same fate as himself, but he sees Jesus as an innocent man. How did he know that? How did he come to that conclusion? He sees him as someone not deserving this fate, but more than that, he sees Jesus as a king. This has to be God's revelation to him uh, of what it is that he's witnessing here. And he asks to be remembered when Jesus comes into his kingdom. That is, when Jesus is fully revealed as the one who is in authority and control to be remembered. And Jesus in return promises him immediate paradise. Now the Greek word for paradise, that's a word that we often mistake for heaven, uh, is paradisio. And it refers to the Garden of Eden, interestingly enough, uh, a state of peace and contentment where all things are just and fair and whole. So Jesus is describing the, the kingdom of God, what its characteristics will be, all things set right. But we could actually describe that as well as God's realm. So heaven isn't necessarily too far off, though we understand heaven is an intermediate state as we wait for God to restore all things and set all things right. Um, So here we've got a terrorist with nothing to do to make up for his ways, with no time to reform his life or make amends with someone else. This guy was granted an unconditional welcome into God's realm simply because he asked to join Jesus' kingdom, acknowledged Jesus as king. (laughs) Uh, That's amazing, but that is such good news. I mean, that is really, really good news because we realize that God's reign is revealed through a grace-filled acceptance acceptance by God, reconciled in relationship. I mean, that's the idea of salvation, the end of our exile from God. This man didn't have an opportunity to do anything except die at the hands of Rome. What made the difference was his acceptance by God and the promise of things set right in the end. This man still died on that cross, but he died with the promise that God would set things right. Not in that context, in some other time, in some other way. Not necessarily time. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you enter into it. But in some other way, some other means. What mattered most was that he was reconciled with God, whose intent is to redeem all things. Again, the cross becomes this picture into God's heart. We see what God's intention is all along. His intention for humanity to bring us back into relationship with him. That's why when the church was established and commissioned, Paul described it in 2 Corinthians 5 like this. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, and contextually he's saying on the cross, God was in Christ on the cross reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message 
that you're going to hell if you don't do what I say. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. This is the ministry of the church. Not to be the moral police who condemn and vilify those who don't share our convictions. We are the ambassadors of God's desire for reconciliation. This is what the mission of the church is. No matter if a person is a terrorist on a cross or whatever their state, the message isn't get right and come to God. The message always has been come to God and he'll make all things right. We've had it backwards for far too long and we're seeing the fruit of it. If, if the latest polls can be trusted about our present society's view of the church. God's kingdom is revealed through a grace-filled acceptance. Even at the last minute, like a terrorist on a cross. Come to Christ. Allow Him to do His redemptive work. And then we who represent Him trust Him enough to do His redemptive work. And not to take over for Him. (laughs) You're taking too long. (laughs) All right, let's keep reading. Verse 44. By this time it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When the Roman officer overseeing The execution saw what had happened. He worshiped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. That's where we'll stop today. There's, There's so much happening here, and we've got such limited time to try to get into it. But Jesus is there on the cross and Luke describes a darkness covering the land. Now, some have tried to identify this as a solar eclipse happening. Um, Even if it were, it still had to be supernatural because this happened at the Passover during a full moon, which makes a solar eclipse an impossibility at that time. Uh, It's a miraculous sign. I have no trouble with that. It's a miraculous sign uh, that God did to communicate something. The real question is what? What what is he trying to communicate with uh, in this? Some have said well to show God's deep displeasure for what's happening. It's possible, I don't know. There's no description given. But if we were to look at darkness like a hyperlink, then we then we'd think about where where do we find darkness as representative of anything? And if we were to travel all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis, that, that darkness covered the face of the earth and the earth was without form and void. It's chaotic and in turmoil, disordered. And God spoke into that disorder saying, let there be light. And the initiation of God's order of things began. So here we could look at this as a return to the darkness, a sort of anti-creation at this moment. 
A return to the chaos and the void. The full violation of God's order has now occurred. Awaiting a new creation which occurs on Sunday and is announced through an empty tomb. That's a lot to digest. You have to take some time to ponder that. But here Jesus says his final words. He commits himself into the Father's hands. He did all things through instruction and submission to the Father. And here, even at his last, he commits himself into the Father's hands. The crowds moved by this. The Roman officer acknowledges the injustice of his own system in this. So much to dig into. You could dig into that. They disperse with sadness as disciples stand by impotently watching what's happened. You can imagine what's going on in their minds. Three and a half years of devoting your life and service to the guy that you thought for sure was Messiah just to see it all come crashing down in this moment. He breathes his last they don't know what's coming in this. We got the benefit of knowing where this is going because, you know, we went to church once or twice. But, but those guys, they didn't know any of that stuff. How many times in life have we stood there watching our hopes and dreams breathe their last, walk away in sorrow and sadness, having no idea what God's up to? But those are other sermons for other times. What, what happens in the middle of that text is what I want to focus on. The temple curtain was torn in two by unseen hands, by unseen means. So inside the Jewish temple, uh, there, there was this inner chamber that was closed off to everyone except for the high priest, and he could only go in once a year. It was called the Holy of Holies, and it was a, a place of designated meeting between heaven and earth. That was the concept behind it. This was God's, this was like an overlap of God's realm with the earth. This is where you could, you could meet with him. But again, separating that inner chamber from the rest of the world was this thick, dark curtain. So this was symbolic of humanity's alienation from God. The, the worst consequence of this cursed world of being exiled from God, cut off from our creator. That curtain hung as this symbolic divide between God and man, between heaven and earth. And Luke describes that curtain being torn down the middle, the implication from top down, signifying, for one thing, the end of the temple system, as Jesus had forecast its end in when he disrupted the sacrifices that day that he overthrew the money changers' tables. The end of the temple system. But more importantly than that, we see that the cross of Christ removes all barriers between God and the human race he lovingly made. God's kingdom unites heaven and earth and reconciles us to God. And the means by which he accomplished that was the cross. That's why it's good news. And that's why the cross will always be a symbol of good news, of God's great love for creation. That curtain is gone. Think of that. And you think about what it stood for symbolically. That curtain is gone. It's still gone. It's gone. Nothing stands between us and the God who made us. We have free access to God, the creator and the ruler of all things. Our lives now become the meeting place between heaven and earth, God and humanity. 
He takes up his dwelling in us as Jesus forecast, as Paul later reiterates. And all of that was accomplished by the cross of Christ. All of it because he went and did what we were powerless to do. The cross reveals God's forgiveness of sins. God has forgiven our rebellion and taken the consequence of sin. And now a passageway has been torn between our realm and God's realm. There is now a doorway back to Eden. That's what the cross provides. And that's what the torn curtain means for us. Now we can, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, Come boldly before God's throne of grace. Nothing stands in our way. There is no more separation from God. The cross has fully reconciled us. What you do or don't do does not change what the cross has accomplished. What anyone says of you or thinks of you does not matter, does not change what the cross has accomplished. I, I realize it's a deep theological kind of truth, but it's so important to all of us because, listen, it's happened over and over again all throughout the history of the church that we have this tendency in developing our religious mindsets to try and sew that curtain back up, constantly running around with our little sewing kits Getting in there saying, oh, somebody messed up here, God. We'll get this back. We'll keep the riffraff out. We'll make sure it's respectable around here. We're constantly sending out the message. If you want to come to God, you've got to do this ritual or you have to reform that sin or you have to meet this religious demand. And with each new rule, we're attempting to sew that curtain back up. But if I can reverse something Jesus said about another issue altogether, so don't read into it any more than that. But what God has separated, let no man sew back together. <laughs> let what God has torn. Because no human went into that temple to tear it, to tear that curtain. That was not done by human hands. What God has torn apart, what God has removed, we dare not, dare not try to put back into place. And we dare not let anyone else do it in our lives. Let's come boldly through that torn curtain, not trying to rely on our good works, not trying to meet religious obligations. Let's just come as we are for God to shape us into who he meant us to be. Let God do that work. Let's not usurp that from him. The curse of separation from God is, is gone. It was removed on that cross. So let's live like it's true. Let's breathe deeply that free air of God's redemption for us. Let's not allow someone else to impose some other regulation on us. Let's not impose it on ourselves. Let's definitely not impose it on one another. Let's, with humility and gratitude, pass through that torn curtain, remembering what it cost to tear it apart, remembering what he did to show his love for us. Let's come humbly yet boldly before his throne and receive this new life 
He's promised us. Let's represent the hope of God's kingdom. Believing in and offering His loving forgiveness, extending this loving acceptance to all who want to be reconciled with Him. And let's not allow any new barriers to God's great grace be constructed, at least on our watch. Let's keep that curtain torn. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with us, please, Father, we thank you for all that was accomplished. It's a humbling thing to recognize our own helplessness, to resolve or to change things. How many of us, Lord, spent so much of our lives trying to run from things that were within us that we could never escape, that you, by your mercy and your grace, began to redeem and to alter and change in miraculous ways that we couldn't even begin to understand. I can look at my own life, Lord, and remember as though it were someone else attitudes and actions and behaviors that are so foreign to me now that weren't altered or changed because I submitted to someone else's regime of behavior modification but changed because I got closer to you. Because we come boldly before your throne, God. But we can't remain upright there. The closer we get, the more we drop to our knees. The more that love radiates towards us, the more overwhelming it becomes. And oh God, what love you have for the human race that we are recipients of. So come, Holy Spirit, and fill us with that love and enable us to broadcast it because nothing else will change this world. But you alone can accomplish this through your love and your grace. So make us agents that rightly represent who you are in this world. I pray that for each one of us here. I pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You unravel me with a melody You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone. I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I am no longer a slave to fear. I am 
child of God From my mother's womb You have chosen me Love has called my name I've been born again Into your family Your blood flows through my veins I am no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God I am no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God not by works of righteousness, which I've done, (laughs) no, but by the mercy of a God who loved me and gave himself for me. Go in that confidence, knowing who you are. Believe it. If you'll believe it, you'll change the world. I believe that. All right, well, let's speak this blessing on each other before we bail out. Actually, before we do that, 
Let's pray for the, the, the team in, in uh, South Sudan. Father, we just pray for uh, the, the Ritmans and the team from Catalyst, and we just pray, Lord God, that you bless them, that you surround them with your grace. Lord God, we know that they're, do, they're doing wonderful things in your name, demonstrating this great love and bringing healing to those who need it. And so we pray, Father, that you heal them and that you uh, remove this bug and that you enable them to continue on in the course that you've set them on. We thank you for the good works and the good things that you're doing there through them. And we pray that you continue that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's speak this blessing on each other. May the peace of the Lord Christ be with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Go in peace, you children of God.